presents Midnight Chats. Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octivigant companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers and have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. On this episode, we are joined by author, investigator, researcher, and honorary archives officer for the Society for Psychical Research, Dr. Melvin Willen. Yes. I, I'm so thrilled we got to talk to a member of the SPR, let alone their head archivist. Yeah, no, that was, and what a what a fascinating interview just from the information that he had because, of course, because he has access to all of the information. Yeah, this is, again, somebody who is like, uh, I'm really concerned about when he eventually passes this mortal coil. What's going to happen to that vast collection, and how do I obtain it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you move to England and become a member of the SPR and somehow convince them that you can become the head archivist. Yeah, I'd yeah. say I need to have a very serious conversation with my wife, but I'm pretty sure if I just said the words we're moving to England, she'd just say yes. <laughs> You're probably not wrong. So I, I got to be careful. I, I can't... Uh, I can't make a joke that ends up committing me to leaving the country. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. no, uh, this is a, this was a lot of fun. Our British takeover continues as we continue. <laughs> yeah. Just by complete accident, we have found ourselves interviewing a series of people from England, uh, yeah. which is great fun. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun, and this one is no different, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Yeah, uh, so we want to let them listen to it? Let's yeah. do it. Let's go. Bye, listeners. And we are on the air with Dr. Melvin Willen. Uh, Dr. Willen, thank you for giving us your time this morning. It's a pleasure. All right, so getting into our uh, our first question here, it's one that we ask all of our guests because we are a book club, uh, which is what are you reading and what sort of books do you tend to gravitate towards? Um, very much factual books rather than fiction, um, although occasionally fiction, obviously. Uh, they tend to be books about the paranormal and psychical research, that sort of thing. Okay. I mean, that sounds a lot like our reading list, as you might imagine. Yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. I, I, so I'm, I'm curious, how much, I guess, new material do you find yourself reading versus stuff that you dig out of the archive? Yes. Well, I, I get sent quite a few books to review when they're published. And so, therefore, I'm, I'm kept up to date in that respect. And uh, I've got a few thousand books of my own, most of which I've read, but not all. So there's always mm -hmm. a backlog of books that uh, I need to read. I, I understand that there's a growing mountain next to my desk that is my need to work through pile. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, moving into our next question, regarding your work with the SPR and your broader work within the paranormal, as, what brought you into the world of paranormal research? Was this something you always had an interest in? Was there some sort of triggering event? And how did you come to work with the SPR? Okay. Um, well, initially, uh, I was a, a music teacher by profession. Um, and my interest was in music, um, but my, my hobby, if you like, was was mm. paranormal research, uh, psychical investigation, that sort of thing. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to put the two together? There's so much uh, anomalistic uh, activity, shall we say, in music. People just don't understand why music does what it does and so on and so forth. 
So I approached various uh, universities to see whether anyone would be willing to tutor me, supervise me in a PhD. Um, and uh, most of them said no. Um, but, <laughs> but finally, I, I came across one uh, where the, the music professor said, well, I'll do the music if you can find a parapsychology professor. And the parapsychology professor at a different university said, well, I'll do the parapsychology if you can find a music professor. Bingo, out came the first PhD. Yeah, nice. So that's how the, the combination sort of started. Um, the work with the SPR was me wanting to be a member, being a member of the SPR about, I don't know, 40-odd years ago. Um, and then saying one day, what, what are all these cassette tapes doing here? Um, does anybody know what's on them? And, and basically they said, well, no, we don't. So I said, well, why don't I listen to them all and and, and make a list of what's on them? And, and they said, oh, yes, please. <laughs> um, and so from that moment onward, again, surprise, surprise, I, I got embroiled in the SPR and, and finally got appointed as the archive liaison officer. Oh, wow. So, uh, so you have been with the SPR for close to 40 years now then? Mm -hmm. Yeah, more or less. Okay. Now, uh, on that topic, we actually did want to talk to you a bit about your PhD thesis there. I saw that you did quite a bit of work at the intersection between music and the anomalous. And I mean, that's fascinating. So we were curious, I suppose, uh, have you found anything in the in your research into that? Is there something to it uh, in terms of its effect on psi phenomenon? Um, yes, well, I, I, I think there is. I mean, I, I did I actually did two PhDs and the second one was was music and paranormal phenomena, but from the the witchcraft and the the, the pagan societies, if you like, uh, used in ritual and that sort of thing. And although a lot of it in, in both of them uh, came up sort of with a big negative, but there was just the odd sort of gem, if you like, now and then that I thought, whoa, what's what's going on here with all my scepticism, scepticism perhaps, um, that I actually found that there was strange things going on in different areas of music and the paranormal, which I pursued with great gusto and i'm still not sure what was going on other than something was going on that we don't currently understand now is your research more focused i suppose on the effect the music has on the listener or on i guess the generative process of how say artists write their songs things like that yeah it's it's very broad um for instance to give you an example there's um musical mediums people that believe they're in touch with dead composers and they, okay. they start writing music of varying qualities. And some of it is actually pretty good. And some of it is absolutely awful, in my opinion. Um, and, and then there's musical anomalies where people are in perhaps the, the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere. And suddenly they're, they're hearing music and they don't understand. And they've, in one or two cases, actually recorded it um, mm. and, and still not been able to understand what's going on. So they're sort of what I call uh, rather flippantly musical ghosts, if you like. Um, ghost comes through the wall. I'm not interested, but but if somebody's playing a violin somewhere, then I am interested. Now we got now we just got to find a haunted big band hall and then send you there. Be, <laughs> sick with well, evidently, ghosts. Evidently, Alcatraz was haunted by banjo music belonging to um, Al Capone. So I read somewhere or the other. So. Oh That's wow. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah, that is one element of the Alcatraz haunting I've never heard of, but now I'm, it, whenever I manage to go there, I got to listen for the banjo. Can you imagine <laughs> trying to ask Al Capone to stop playing the banjo? <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> Some of his inmates may have done, I think. Yeah. Now, we also noticed on the side, you also direct or directed the Essex Guitar Orchestra. And we're, I was just curious, has that ever uh, sort of overlapped with your research into this topic? Is there anything that weird that's happened in your pursuit of that uh, 
of that work? Absolutely no. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the, the guitar orchestra was, was one of my musical things that I started off in uh, 1977, and it grew and grew up to 60 members. Um, and we traveled around various places in the world. We went to America a few times and uh, India and China and you, you name it, basically, doing concerts. Um, there was nothing particularly paranormal about any of it other than the, the horrible playing that sometimes occurred under my direction. <laughs> Completely fair. So uh, moving into the next question, again, on the topic of the paranormal and music, I noticed that you published one article, which is of particular interest to me, as I have a deep fascination with near-death experiences. And I saw uh, that you uh, published an article exploring the place music has in the human death experience. So I was just wondering, at a high level, could you fill us in on what your findings were? Yes, this this was rather an interesting one. I, I spent about a year researching this and, and published the paper, as you said. Um, and I, I did it from different angles. One was the sort of historical examples, some of them stretching right back and, and people believing they heard music and uh, on their death, um, other people hearing music at the same time, which is interesting in itself. Um, but but then it was brought right up to date um, about, oh dear, whenever I say a few years ago, it ends up being 10 years ago or something like that, where, where uh, a, a chap I met purely random at a, at a concert rehearsal for a, a performance that one of my own students was doing, and, and he had, had had a near-death experience where he didn't hear music, but after he'd got through, uh, came out of the hospital, he started to hear music in his head and felt this compulsion to write it down. Um, and he had no training in music particularly. He wasn't interested in classical type music before. Um, but nevertheless, he he was sort of, uh, he believed he had to write this piece of music and it was it was duly performed. I went to the first performance. It was published it's it's available now and um and it's a fine piece of music in the sort of a Vaughan Williamsy type of 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 um genre shall we say um but um completely out of the blue and and he could he couldn't understand it himself at the time either oh wow yeah I've I've heard stories you know people coming back from NDEs uh able to speak other foreign languages they weren't able to speak before or with strange skills I've never heard of someone coming back with a I guess a piece of art fully formed in their head. That's really interesting. Uh, and it yeah. rem it reminds me actually quite a bit of uh, when I was in college, I got to attend some classes with the folklorist, Dr. Ari Burke. And he brought in a harpist one time who one of the things she does is she plays the harp for dying people because they've done studies and they found that it eases their anxiety and it eases the process of dying. If they're listening to this beautiful harp music and, uh, so when I saw that you had written that article, I was I was very curious. Uh, but I mean, at the end of the day, that's fascinating. I I I've, I don't know what to make of that. How we go back to that realm and bring back this complete piece? But it, it kind of reminds me of like you we were we've talked about it on the show and you mentioned it before. Like some musicians get that like download experience for when they are thinking of a song. Like they they say that they don't really know where the song came from. It just kind of came to them. It's almost like the NDE, like having an NDE is that same kind of experience, but instead of a download, you're actually like you've gone to the other side or gone to another realm and came back with a song or something like that. That's very valid indeed. There's a, a, a book, again, by uh, an American uh, that was written probably about 100 years ago now um, called uh, Conversations with Composers or something like that. And the name of the chap that, that wrote it was called Abel, A-B-E-L. Um, and and he basically interviewed numerous composers at the time, at the end of the 19th 
beginning of the 20th century um, and said, look, where do you get your inspiration from? And, and they came out with similar things to what you're, you're just implying. I asked a few composers during my PhD uh, what the, how they found their inspiration. Where did it come from? And, and they said basically the same, that sort of it comes from in, in, comes into their head, but they believed very strongly from an outside source. Mm. It wasn't just their training coming through. It, it was something that was beyond them that they then felt compelled to write down. I suppose, uh, I guess, inviting speculation. Uh, I, I mean, if you had a guess, what do you think is kind of at the root cause of that? Is that something like an encounter with the universal unconsciousness, some unknown facility within humanity that we haven't really tapped into yet? Well, there's like any anything. There's always uh, at least three sides to to something. Oh, oh yeah. Um, and, and and the the skeptical side would would say no, it's just the brain downloading this, that, and the other that's already in there. So fine training, uh, hereditary, whatever. The other side would say, oh no, it's it's the genuine paranormal. It's God or the angels or or something like that. Um, and and I would tend to go down the middle with a well, I don't really know, but but we don't know it all about any subject. Uh, let alone this one. So, so therefore, let's keep keep exploring it and see if we can find out more about it. I think that is a, that is a wonderful approach to take. Uh, a typical philosophy we try to embrace on our show is we'll entertain anything, but believe nothing because <laughs> we don't ultimately know. Yeah, you know, we don't. You don't know what you don't know. You can't account for that. Well, there's, we have a nice saying. I'm sure you've heard it before. That is to to have an open brain, but, uh, have an open mind, but don't, not so open that your brains fall out. Basically, mm-hmm. so it's, it's down the middle. All right, so moving into your uh, direct work with the SPR. So in our readings, uh, many of the times we've encountered the SPR, it's been in a historical sense, from their involvement with the Enfield haunting to to the work on the Alma Fielding case. However, by comparison, we've encountered relatively little information about the more current operations of the SPR, at least in the books we've covered. So what does the modern SPR look like, and how does that differ from the organization uh, historically? Okay, yes, it's it's changed during the years. In in the early days, obviously, it was um, learned people from universities. We've still got plenty of those, by the way. Um, but but there was a fair amount of, of the well-heeled people, shall we mm. say, well-heeled amateurs that, that could actually afford to, to do this sort of thing without maintaining jobs themselves particularly. Um, and there was an emphasis on spiritualism. There was an emphasis on apparitions and poltergeist. There was an emphasis on finding out about this new thing called hypnotism, um, that, that, that sort of idea. And over the years, it's, it's become more and more scientifically based. So now it's, it's like in the realm more of parapsychology, shall we say, okay. which means uh, extrasensory perception and uh, experimental work rather than the field work. Now, that's not to say that the field work doesn't happen still, because it certainly does in, in different committees within the SPR. But there's a great deal more of of work in in university psychology or parapsychology departments where they're trying to investigate things and and give it statistical significance rather than going out and just talking to people. I I actually rather like going out and talking to people myself (laughs) rather than being stuck in a lab with somebody and and with headphones on and and the like. But um, that's just my own personal preference. Now, I I suppose in terms of a scope or scale, is the SPR larger today than it was historically or has it shrunk? It's bigger. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I I thought that might be the case, but it it was very interesting because 
again, uh, encounter when you read about the SPR in books, it is very much uh, presented as this historical artifact of a particular era. So much so that when I went looking online and found the SPR webpage, I was looking. I was, this looks modern. This looks very new. How is <laughs> yeah. this? I, I, I honestly like I had no idea the SPR was still in operation. So it, it's fascinating to me to hear that it's actually larger than it's ever been. Yes, in, indeed, it, it is. Um there's the the archive is is bigger than it's it's ever been it grows all the time um which is something that i'm involved with obviously directly um we our committees are, are, are very busy in investigating cases you mentioned enfield from the 1970s which which i did a lot of work on as well um but there's there's other cases that have come and gone the, the thing is we we don't um commercialize things really it's it's done in in a very scientific or almost academic way and therefore, we're not we're not out there on television doing a most haunted show or anything like that. It it tends to be done fairly seriously. I, I appreciate that. We need more serious inquiry into these sorts of things. I was to say, I think that's a good thing. I think we could probably do with a few less Discovery Channel shows. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're not <laughs> just wrong. a few. Yeah. Um, now it's a veiled criticism. I won't hear it, and I won't respond to it. <laughs> <laughs> Now, on the topic of the SPR archive, uh, I mean, as people who like research a little too much, we began to salivate at the idea of an SPR archive. So I'm curious, where is the archive housed and is it open to the public? And if someone wanted to gain access to that, how would they go about doing it? OK, right. Here we go. Um, the the paper archive is um, housed at Cambridge University Library um, and by paper. I mean, manuscripts, photographs, correspondence, anything like that is housed there, as well as a few thousand books on the subject, ranging right back into the 17th century and, and that sort of thing. Oh, so wow, this, wow. Is, this is a, a very big archive housed there. Um, members of the public can go and visit it. They can dig out things and look at them. And it's as long as they've got a reader's card or they've got permission from either a university um, or Cambridge University itself, or the SPR. So it is open to the public, yes. Now, that's one part of the archive. Then another part of it is the library, which is housed in London uh, at the offices of the SPR in West Kensington, which is near Olympia. And that has a few thousand books, but it doesn't have specifically archive material. It has a library, it has a librarian that goes in once a week. Um, and again, the public... If they join the SPR, then they can certainly take books out unless they're on the restricted list sort of thing, being a, you know, very rare books, for instance. Um, and members of the public can come along and, and have a look at things. But it would be nice then if they thought about joining rather than thinking they can just use the library. It's a private library. And then finally, the third part of the archive is, is my bit which is the audiovisual, which is housed with me at my house in Norfolk, uh, which is in um, sort of the eastern part of England. And I have all the recordings that the SPR has made, which goes back to um, old re records or vinyl, as I believe they're called now, and cassette tapes, DVDs, um, anything that's audiovisual, I, I have housed here in a separate building. And, and again, if somebody wants to come along and visit and have a listen and have a watch, then yes, by all means, just contact me and I'll probably say yes. Now, I, I'm curious, is there uh, has there been efforts to digitize the archive in any sort of way to preserve it going forward? Yes. Um, the concerning, for instance, to give you one example, the Enfield uh, material, 
uh, Guy Playfair and Morris Gross, who were the main investigators of Enfield, they produced hundreds of cassette tapes of recordings and some reel to reel. And I actually digitalized the whole lot oh, wow. um, and, and made a, a, a sort of a booklet, shall we say, of what was on the tapes as well. So people could read what was on there. They could look it up. Uh, uh, it's not gone online yet, but it's going to go online, I suspect. So they could put in a keyword and, and say, oh, wow, let's now listen to that bit sort of thing if they were particularly interested in um, screaming girls or um, things leaping off walls or whatever it was that, that they were interested in. I'm not going to lie, hearing that that's going to be available online somewhere sends a small knot of dread through me just because I know I'm going to lose like three days of my life. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, you're not. It's not there yet. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, in your work with the archive, I mean, such an amazing and extensive collection. Have you uncovered any sort of forgotten corners of history or cases which caught you by surprise when you found them? Um, I tended to to know about most of them already, um, just through extensive reading myself and extensive research. There were parts, certainly, of the Enfield one, which which surprised me. I I, I approached Enfield. I never went to Enfield. It was um, you know, as I say, 1977, so it was before I was launching myself fully in into paranormal activities. Um, but but certainly, there were parts of that when I thought, whoa, whoa, what what on earth is going on here? When you when you sort of got to grips with with some of the actual recordings, and especially when they were made by different recorders. So you'd have Guy one side of the room and Morris the other side of the room um, with their recorders on. So you're getting it like a, a from two angles, if you like. So it was there were some very surprising things there, um, amongst all the rubbish, of course, that there was also there. Yeah. Now, I, on the topic of Enfield, we do have a couple of questions about that. Uh, so for our main show, we did read Guy L. Playfair's book, This House is Haunted. And we know you published your own book analyzing the audio recordings taken at Enfield. Now, we know from that from the book we read that Playfair's final verdict on the veracity of the claimed activity was that something was anomalous was going on there. We were curious if you agreed with that assessment and if the Enfield haunting was a legitimate case of paranormal occurrences, a fraud or somewhere in between. I think it was all of those things, to be honest. I, I think some of it was fraudulent, um, almost without a doubt. I mean, the girls actually admitted to, to fooling about now and then and, and getting up to tricks, which is understandable for children mm -hmm. um, and adults, for that matter. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I think some of it was mistaken identity. I mean, if you're looking for something spooky, something happens, you immediately think, oh, wow, that must have been spooky, rather than it just being a, a, a just a natural occurrence, shall we say. I mean, the house I live in, there's creaks and things going on during the night. I don't think it's a ghost. I think it's the, the woodwork playing up or the radiators going off, something like that. But then finally, we get to the interesting bit, um, which is when, having discussed all of those possibilities, one's still left with, well, what happened there then? I, I think that I agree with Guy and with Morris Gross that there, was, there were activities going on there that are not explicable in normal terms. But to the extent, I think they thought there was more going on than I think, um, having listened to all the tapes. Okay. So therefore, okay. I, 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 I'm sort of with them, but not totally with them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I, did you have, looking over, I guess, the wealth of the SPR, do you think that the Enfield case is as exceptional as Playfair played it up? Or is it more typical of the other Poltergeist cases that the SPR has investigated? I, I think it's the best documented one. So many people from the SPR and elsewhere visited there. People came from all over the world 
to to visit it in 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 small doses. Um, and I think that probably um, it's, it's like the Lager advert, and it? it's probably the best uh, recorded event of a poltergeist in mm. certainly modern history. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and I once I heard the, your book, I desperately need to pick it up because yeah. there are certain sections of the Playfair book I now need to read compared to the actual tapes uh, because there are certain sections which arguably in the Playfair book, it was very tough to figure out what was going on, but it kind of got the impression that it was very tough to figure out what was going on if you were in the room, let alone reading about it after the fact. Yeah. It, it was madness at times. I mean, when you, when you hear the tapes, as I said, there was about 100 cassette tapes from Morris and about another 50 or 60, if I recall, from Guy Playfair. And each of these tapes had at least an hour and a half or, or so's worth of material on it. So there, there were times when you've got the television blaring, you've got the girls screaming their heads off, um, you've got bangs and crashes as things allegedly were flying across the room. You've you've got Morris going, oh my God, what what on earth's going on now? You've you've got the mother yelling at them. It's it's mayhem at times, yeah. absolute mayhem. Oh, that would sound fascinating to pour through, but also I imagine slightly maddening. <laughs> trying to pick out who's saying what in, in amongst all the screeching, etc. Yeah. That's what I would say without the video and just having to analyze nothing but the audio, God, that would have been that would be like it again, it would be fascinating, but maddening from from a listening perspective too, just trying yes, to make sense you, of it all. Absolutely. Well, I used to have long hair and now I'm bald, you see. <laughs> after listening to that. I, I am uh, on the way there. These books are doing it to me. <laughs> On the topic of the audio from Enfield, one of the topics that Playfair wrote about, which uh, we, we've often heard about regarding Enfield, was the audio analysis of Janet's, uh, I guess, the voice of the poltergeist coming out of Janet, the voice. Did you do any kind of analysis on that? And does it seem anomalous to you or something that she could do as a gaffe? I don't think it was a gaffe. Um, I haven't done any scientific investigation of it. Uh, myself, I don't have the specialist equipment to do that, but they did use specialist equipment at the time. Um, and I think that it would have damaged her, her vocal cords um, or the false cords, which is what they believe was going on there, if she had kept it going. I mean, she used to keep it going for, for a long time um, with gaps, of course. Um, and when you hear her speak now, she's still around and kicking and uh, uh, talks occasionally to, to various TV programs and the like. Um, she hasn't sort of got uh, lost her voice completely. She hasn't got the, the good old Bill croaking voice that she yeah. had then. But um, so I, I think that something very odd again was going on there. And I, I don't think she was fooling it, really. I think possibly she did now and then um, when she was expected to get results and couldn't and Bill or whoever it was wasn't coming through her. Then perhaps she faked it. But I, I think that not all the time by any means. Now, on that note, one of the uh, points of confusion I at least had when looking at the Enfield case was the discussion about the voice coming from Janet at times and Rose at other times. There's not a Rose. Um, guy, no, Guy Guy used pseudonyms in the book because ah. oh. he didn't want to actually do that. The, 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 he, the names of the girls were Janet was the main one. Uh, then there was Margaret, who was her older sister. Oh. And then there was, there was Billy, who was the little boy who had a terrible speech impediment. Mm. And and Johnny, who was almost never there, yeah. Oh. Uh, but uh, but having uh, but to get back to your question though, um, yes, both Janet and Margaret both produced the voices. Um, Janet mainly, Margaret occasionally, and even little Billy had a go at it. But I suspect he was trying it on. Now I I'm curious, is that common in poltergeist cases where you'll have 
uh, sort of this of uh, the personality of the poltergeist, whatever that may be, coming through multiple anchor points? Um, well, not in my experience of reading on other cases. No, it's not. Um, which makes one think that perhaps it was focusing on Janet, if if indeed it it, it was it, you know, was the mm. voice or whatever the entity, whatever you want to call it, and maybe certainly Billy, I suspect, was was copying it, and maybe it took over Margaret as well. Perhaps she entered into the spirit of it either unintentionally or intentionally or whatever. We'll probably never know. Now, I I suppose uh, the next logical question there would be regarding that voice. There's an awful lot of conjecture about the agency of the entity there. Are poltergeists uh, manifestations of latent psychic energy? Are they an outside entity? Uh, I guess, what is your feeling on the Enfield case? Do you tend to lean one way or the other? Um, well, there are various possibilities, obviously, ranging from it was the spirit of Bill, this dead old man that came through Janet and took her over, a bit like the film The Exorcist, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. He was a sort of demonic character. That's one extreme. The other extreme, of course, is she faked the whole thing. Um, and, and I, as often is the case, it's very boring, but I, I tend to go down the middle and I don't believe it was a spirit entity that was taking over. That's just my own personal belief. You know, it's I'm not representing the SPR or any, anyone else for that matter. Um, but neither do I believe it was Janet faking it the whole time. I, I think that she was taken over in some form or the other possibly from within herself, possibly from outside of herself, but something sparked something off in her, which ended up in, in these bizarre results. Um, the voice is very dramatic, but I'm actually like Guy, by the way, I, I, was, I was less interested in the voice than in some of the poltergeist activity, because when something flies across the room in front of your eyes in daylight, and it's happened to me once, uh, but only once in my lifetime, then you 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 tend to think, well, blimey, what happened there? Mm -hmm. um, whereas somebody doing a voice like that, well, I just did it, and I hopefully haven't just been taken over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting this whole idea of Janet being taken over from inside. Uh, when you said that, it just made me think about some suggestions we've read regarding uh, Jung's idea of kind of the internal archetypes that we carry around. And what if that's what poltergeists are, is one of those archetypes yeah. somehow became prominent enough to sort of take over the conscious mind? Yes. Why not indeed? Um, you know, I, I've got a fair amount of respect for archetypes. They, When I was doing my witchcraft studies, um, one of the things that comes up quite a lot is the idea of the archetypes, um, mm -hmm. that, that if somebody is believing they're in touch with... Um, Artemis or um, Athene or, or one of the goddesses, they don't they don't necessarily believe that they're actually sort of flying in through the window and standing there, that they believe that the concept or the archetype of them may have entered into their mind. And uh, I think the ancient Greeks felt that way. So perhaps we could learn a thing or two from them. That idea almost implies, at least if you were to look at those uh, beliefs as metaphysical truth, that, you know, whatever gods are various pantheons, the pantheons are more like cultural interpretations of one kind of shared set of archetypes or sources that's shared across culture that you have you know a war god that comes up over and over again a death god that comes mm -hmm. up over and over again that seems to be ubiquitous regardless of where you are in the world yeah absolutely yes and and i think that many cultures have embraced that sort of concept uh, they use different words for it um so but uh, nevertheless there is a great deal of validity into that sort of philosophical argument i think now, moving into a more on Enfield. So in this book, Playfair did have some less than kind words concerning the behavior of some of his fellow SPR members. 
often saying that they seem more interested in debunking the activity and bullying the children than they were in the actual activity. Uh, now, do you think his assessment was a fair one? Um, I, I wouldn't say bullying. I would completely disagree with that. Okay. Um, many of the people that visited Enfield, um, I, I have known, um, they are either dead now, and I knew them when they were alive, or they're, they're alive now still. In fact, I'm going to see one tomorrow, actually. Mm. Um, so so I'm, I'm still in touch with them. And uh, I don't think there was any hint of bullying going on there. I think if there was any bullying of the children, it, it came from certain aspects of the media rather mm. than trying to get a good story, okay. um, rather than the SPR members. I've, some of them, indeed, were very sceptical about it. And in any organisation, especially like the SPR, where you have complete sceptics, you have complete believers, you have every everything you can imagine within the SPR, you're bound to find some people that are going along looking to, to find fraud and other people going along looking to find paranormal activity. Um, and there was a, a degree of that. But I think overall, a lot of the members of the SPR were fascinated with it. There was no hint that uh, Guy and Morris were getting up to tricks. There was no hint that uh, the mother was was staging it all or any anything like that at all. I, I think they, they found it, the members uh, that, that attended, a fascinating case. Oh, that's that's very interesting. Regarding the idea of debunking the paranormal, obviously it's a very important task because you have to make sure that you're looking at something legitimate if you're going to figure out what's going on there. In that time, looking over the archive and the various cases that you've worked on, have finding cases of fraud at all damaged your ability to kind of believe in these sorts of phenomenon uh, or I guess enter to continue to entertain them? Or is it, I, I guess, is that really not an issue once you get out in the field? Well, I mean, one is very wary when one goes out into the field of the possibility that one's wasting one's time at somebody else's sort of somebody else is having fun with you. They're enjoying themselves, making you look stupid. Um, mm. So I'm, one is aware of that. Um, yes, it probably makes one slightly more sceptical when you do come across it. But um, it's a bit like politics, for instance, that uh, just just because you've got some dodgy politicians. It doesn't mean that all politicians are dodgy, mm. and so you say, "Well, this was this was a bad one. Let's keep away from him or her, um, and concentrate on the, on the ones that are actually producing some good things for the countries concerned." And I think with with paranormal activity, it's the same sort of thing. There are genuine people out there that possibly need help, um, possibly need uh, some sort of, of um, understanding, shall we say, of what's going on. Um, and they're the ones that we like to concentrate on. If we find fraud now and then, well, we say, oh, well, there we go. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in the cases you've investigated, have you ever encountered that where you figured out that someone was trying to pull the wool over your eyes? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I have. And um, and when they do, I, I usually have a few price words to say to them and um, <laughs> off I go. Yeah. I, I mean, I have to ask, do you have any particularly egregious examples you could share? <laughs> oh, dear. I have to be careful here. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, let's just say that um, years ago when I, I used to do sort of stuff with uh, Ouija boards and things like that, I, I don't tend to do that now because it's so open to manipulation. But um, I, I used to come across the odd thing. And, and there was one case, which I, I can mention, actually, because it was a, a long time ago and in a different country. It was in Romania. Um and and uh, there was somebody there who was claiming I'm not going to name any names here mainly because I can't pronounce them anyway. Um, there was there was a, a teenage girl that was claiming that she could read things whilst she was blindfolded, 
Um, and so they would give her colored cards and things like that. And she would just run her hand over them and say, oh, no, this is a blue one. This is a red one. This is a green one, etc." Um, even though she was blindfolded at the time. And I was extremely suspicious uh, about the blindfold that was being used. So um, uh, so I, I said, well, can I take over the blindfolding? And they said, oh, yes, but you've got to be careful because, you know, there's this touching a, a teenage girl and all this business. So I said, it's OK, I'm, I'm not going to physically touch her. I just want to deal with the blindfold. So they they put the blindfold on her and said, there you are. So I said, oh, that's fine. I said, I just want to do one thing now. And where the blindfold was on, I just t pressed very, very lightly where the blindfold was going over the nose and coming down. So I just went like that. I think you can see on, mm -hmm. where the people can hear what I'm doing that. Um, and of course, she, she was looking down her nose to see what the colours were of these cards. Uh, and as soon as I'd done that, she couldn't actually do the test at all. And and I was very unpopular with the person that was promoting her, <laughs> and uh, as you can imagine. Um, and so I, I probably left Romania in disgrace. Lovely country, by the way. <laughs> Are you still up to field work? Is that something that you've relatively left behind, or is it something you're still engaged in? Um, not so much now, but um, occasionally I get involved in it. Yes, it's, it's just a case of time, really, um, because I, I spend a lot of time doing the archive. I do spend a lot of time researching other things. Um, the, the books obviously take a lot of time researching them. The, the most recent one on music and the paranormal, um, which is an encyclopedia, so you can imagine how how much work that took to do. Oh yeah, I mean that that's that's very time consuming. So I, I leave it to, to young people to go out and do the 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 all night vigils, the, like I used to, you know, freezing my, myself in in throughout the night and mainly nothing happening and. Uh, I let others do that now. Now, on the topic of mainly nothing happening, this might be a bit of a tired question, but we we love to ask it. I guess yeah. on your investigations, what have you seen? Have there been any uh, notable instances of encounters with the strange that you can share? Yes. Um, one was not an investigation, which makes it even more interesting because it, it was happening in daylight. It was in my own house at the time, not the one that I've just moved to now. Um, and I was um, having lunch uh, with with a female friend, and we were sat around the dining room table and just having a sort of snack. And she was saying to me, "Have you seen any of uh, anything of your friends yet?" I've, I have a, a couple of friends who are Hungarian; they live in Budapest. And I, I said, "No, I haven't seen them for a year or two because because of difficulties, you know, money and blah blah blah." Mm -hmm. And uh, and I was a little bit uh, sad about that. Well, at that moment, there was a clutter from the other side of the room. Um, and we sort of looked at each other and said, oh, what was that? And hmm, wasn't quite sure. So we went across the room and uh, about 10 feet away from us, a book had come out from the bookcase and had landed on the floor, which you may say, well, it got knocked over. Um, but it, it was a reasonable, substantial book. It was a Hungarian book. Ah. Mm. absolutely uh, appropriate yeah. what had happened um and we both there was no dog around there was no vibration from traffic there was no mice pushing the book off the edge or anything like that my books are very well ordered uh, so i know where they all are and so we said blimey what happened there sort of thing and we we immediately wrote down what had happened each of us signed each other's account and said well i think we've just witnessed poltergeist Hmm. Um, and that's and it wasn't scary or spooky. It was just extremely weird. Yeah. Now, was there an, ever any other activity in that house, or is that just a one-off? Very much a one-off. Um, so it 
was it a coincidence? Well, it was a bizarre coincidence if it was, mm-hmm. um, that it should be the appropriate book at the appropriate moment when I was feeling a little bit sort of sad, if you like, about not being able to see these people because they're good friends, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's it's like so much of the paranormal. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be sort of ghosts walking through walls, et cetera. Um, but it's nevertheless very interesting. And, I mean, there's a whole host of those similar things which uh, don't make good television and don't make good podcasts, but which are possibly more genuine than some mm-hmm. of the explosive ones that, that might do. Absolutely. I wonder if something like that, where it's like you guys were talking about this, uh, talking about that, uh, about your Hungarian friends, and then that book flew off the shelves. It's like, I wonder, and we've talked about this before on our show, but it's like, I wonder if that's just like that innate psychic energy from us. And you said you were feeling a little sad about not being able to see your friends and that manifesting to throw that book off to be like, hey, you know, if nothing else, you could read this book, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I I think that's spot on. I mean, that's that's part of what my own belief system is that I think that things occasionally like that happen and, and, and we cause some sort of rupture in the psychic field if such a thing exists mm-hmm. that causes something like that to have a physical effect on our surroundings. So absolutely yes. It it also reminds me uh a topic that we've discussed in relation to UFOs uh, specifically. There's this uh, one of the authors we've read DW Pasuka forwarded this idea that a lot of people who have a UFO experience very soon after having it will have what she calls a book encounter. Well, they'll, they'll encounter some book and it will often, uh, again, show up kind of anomalously like that. It'll be, they'll wander into a trance into a bookstore and just walk right to it or something like that. And that book provides them the context through which they kind of build their belief system about the encounter they had. Uh, we've also encountered it in the writings of a Gary Lockman regarding the library angel, this mm-hmm. whole idea that when you're researching the ideas you're looking for, look for you in return. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Yes. There's, we, we have a researcher who died a, a couple of years ago called Mary Rose Barrington. And, and she was, she coined an expression called jots, uh, J O T T S just one of those things should be jutes really, but never mind. we'll forgive her that. Um, <laughs> and, and, and she sort of uh, wrote quite extensively about jots, things that just one of those things, but, but sometimes they shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't just be a coincidence. Mm. Uh, like if you like, she would have called my Hungarian book, a, a, one of those jots because it's a strange event to have happened. And a, a skeptic would say, well, it was just a coincidence and you know, something did knock it off the shelf. Um, but but it, if every single time one's going to call it that, then you end up being a bit dopey, I think, thinking it's always just a coincidence. Yeah. So, uh, now, on that topic, uh, regarding the SPR itself, but I suppose also regarding uh, your own beliefs, I the term paranormal is a useful umbrella in having these discussions, but it's not very uh, informative about what that actually entails. Some people say, well, that includes UFOs and Bigfoot. And so we say, no, it's only ghosts and psychic phenomenon. So I guess both for the SPR and yourself, what's under your paranormal umbrella? Oh, yes. Well, well, this this would depend entirely on who you speak to. Um, Some people in the SPR would say, well, we're not going to do cryptozoology. So. I mean, I'm a Loch Ness monster and Bigfoot and Yeti and what have you. No, no, we're not doing that. And other people would say yes. Oh, yes, we we like them. And some people would say yes, we 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 like our UFOs. And other people would say no, we don't like UFOs. Um, and they would they would branch these things into Fortiana basically. So the the Fortian times 
deals with all of those sorts of things and many other things as well. I, I think that the, the SPR changes its mind about things um, as the years go by. So there was a time when the SPR was very interested in witchcraft phenomena. Um, and I would say currently, uh, most of the members are not interested in witchcraft phenomena. And I would say that the UFOs have come and they have gone, um, not so much now. Um, but, but as I said right at the beginning of our chat, the ESP, extrasensory perception, and psychokinesis PK, they are main topics of interest within the SPR at the moment. So much more the psychology, parapsychology departments ra rather than the broadest of psychical research. Okay. For, for me, uh, personally, I, I embrace quite a broad number of things. I've written a book about cryptozoology, for instance, mm. a few years ago. Um, and uh, although I don't know much about UFOs, but I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be UFOs. After all, it's unidentified flying objects. Mm. So if it's a flying object that we can't identify, then fair enough. Let's yeah. try and identify it. Going forward with that... Uh... You right, said right now the SPR is mostly looking at psi phenomenon. Do you see, I, I guess, any sort of topic kind of coming up to be the next big thing within the SPR, or are we not there yet? That's an, a very good question. You're asking me to um, go into the future, which mm -hmm. uh, I'm not very good at doing. Just purely um, speculating. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, all I would say is that I think that the the scientific basis that, that they are looking at at the moment seems to be predominant and seems to be increasing. Now, if anything happens that that shakes that uh, in the world of apparitions or in the world of poltergeist or in the world of of anything else, then the SPR, as a, a leading authority on these sorts of things, will be the first to get people to investigate it. Uh, it, it reminds me a lot of people uh, in the UFO community talk about, you know, the fabled day the UFO lands on the White House lawn and announces to the world that they're there. Uh, I'm I'm waiting for the day, like at the State of the Union address, the ghost of Abraham Lincoln shows up. That's what I watch. <laughs> well, he's turned up a few times. We've got photographs of him in the archive um, where where he was actually photographed as as in ectoplasmic forms. But whether that was genuine or not, I couldn't possibly say. Actually, on that topic, I, I did notice several of your other books are collections of photos from the archives. Uh, yep. I guess, is that just something you assembled as you were going through the archives? Is that something you sought out? No, it wasn't. There's, there's a, a, a story about this that, unfortunately, Morris Gross, uh, just before he was, he, was well, he was dying and just before he died, he was going to produce a book on photographs of the paranormal from his collection. Okay. Um. And when he realized that the end was coming up, he said to me, because we were quite friendly, um, would I take it on board? And he contacted the publishers and, and said, look, I want to hand over all of this material to me. Um, and can he do the book? So and they said, yes, OK. So he, I ended up doing Ghost Court on film um, on based on his material. Um, and it, alas, he subsequently died. Um, but his, in his will, he left all his material to the SPR, so it now belongs to the SPR. Um, and that's where most of these photos came. They weren't part of the archive then. They were Morris's photos. Okay. Um, but they are part of the archive now because he donated them to them. Now, is that the case for, I know there was multiple paranormal con caught on camera. Is that uh, all of the books were from Morris's collection or just the first one? The first one was was just Morris's connection, uh, sorry, collection. The second one was a combination of SPR, 
uh, Morris's and from other sources, other individuals and so on and so forth, ones that have been sort of discovered in other people's archives and used with permission. Um, and then after that, I, I think there was a, there was one with somebody else that uh, I, I shared it with another chap, and I don't know where he got his his material from. And, and then there was the best of and things like that. Mm -hmm. There was all the, the offshoots that inevitably come. Now, I, one book which I absolutely uh, plan to be ordering is The Monsters Caught on Film because I love Bigfoot photos. <laughs> so I, yeah. I'm curious, was that one also from the SPR archives or was Maurice Gross also interested in Bigfoot? No, he wasn't interested in monsters at all. Uh, I didn't want to call it monsters. This is a publisher's thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, it is, I, I, I like my dinosaurs. Um, I have, you, you can't see it, I have a full-size Triceratops and a half-size Triceratops in my garden. That's awesome. I am I, I am I'm so, so jealous. jealous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I collect triceratopses. My previous house was called Triceratops. I love um, Triceratops. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> I won't show you my tattoo or anything. <laughs> 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 we go off air immediately. But um, <laughs> but having said that, uh, I, I was I was interested in it from from that side, and the publishers said, "Oh yes, let's let's do one on um, dinosaurs and the Yeti and so on and so forth." And and they said basically track down as many photos as you can from any source. Um, the SPR had I think none, um, and Fortune Times had lots, and so on and so forth. So it was a sort of a compilation. I you know it's it's interesting because of the I guess cryptids or monsters that you hear about, the whole idea of relic populations of dinosaurs that fascinates me. But there's just something in me I can't believe it. I can't believe that we would miss that. At the same time, I desperately want it to be true because I want to see a dinosaur with my own <laughs> eyes, other than a crocodile. When you're next round in England, come come up to Norfolk, you'll see a Triceratops. I I my wife has been uh, dying to get me over to England because she studied abroad there. And I'm sure she will be thrilled about me wanting to take this nice side of the countryside to look at a Triceratops. <laughs> I'm sure she would, yes. Yeah. And uh, well, you can actually see them online on on my. Um, I'm I'm not sure if it's on my web pages or not, but it's uh, there. There are pictures of of them because of my house being called it and uh, them being here in in my garden now. All right. Well, thank thank you for that. That is uh, that is fascinating and jealousy inducing. Yeah. So. <laughs> Moving into our last couple of questions here. Uh, now, as for the SPR itself, I've mentioned this earlier in the interview, but it, it always seemed to me to be a uh, an organization that, at least in the fiction, we've not fiction, in the books we've read, is represented as an artifact of a particular time and place. And as you said, it's obviously been going forward into getting getting into the more modern age with more scientific research and lab, lab work. Now, I guess. In that work, uh, it seems to me that the SPR is in this hard position of being in two worlds. On one hand, you're researching a topic that mainstream academia, it seems, pathologically will not accept and seems to shun. And at the same time, there are many people in the paranormal community who take any attempt to scientifically investigate these things or to debunk them as an affront to their dearly held beliefs. So I guess, how does the SPR negotiate that balance and I mean, really, ultimately, this question gets at, do you believe that the SPR, what is the SPR's purpose going forward? What role do you think they're going to have? Well, I, I think that because we don't have a corporate opinion uh, within the SPR, they're always very keen to stress that. It means that all the individuals within the SPR uh, have their own views about things. And as I've said before, there's you you get both sides of, of, of the, the arguments and I think that the SPR tries to accommodate that. I mean, my, my experience of the SPR is that 
they are mainly, not totally, of course, but they are mainly fairly open to the possibility, as long as it's being done reasonably, that, that, that there are anomalous activities going on. And then we try to explain what's going on there. And so uh, and some people will lean more heavily towards apparitions and towards poltergeist and the traditional things, if you like. Um, and other people will lean more to, towards uh, ESP and PSI um, via the laboratories, etc. But it doesn't mean that we discount any of those things. Um, I think that academia is okay with with the likes of the SPR, mainly be, because we 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 don't just sort of go run, running around screaming our heads off at what's what's going on. We tend to look at things in a fairly reasonable way, and we're willing to say no. We think that this is not uh, paranormal in any way, and we're willing to say, well, we think it is. Let's investigate it. My my ex uh, supervisor Rob Mor uh, Bob Morris, who was at Edinburgh at the uh, Kersley chair, I mean he he said let's just not just sort of say it's all rubbish. Let's see what's going on. Let's try and understand what's going on. If it's sociological, if it's psychological, if it's physical, let's try and understand it and add to, to our knowledge of these sort of things. Why not? You know, I think it's a great philosophy to look at these sorts of topics. Um, all right. So moving into our last question, it is hopefully the easiest one. What's next for Dr. Willen and where can people find your work? Um, okay, what's next for me? Um, at the moment, I've I've got two vast collections which have been donated to the SPR, which I'm trying to plough my way through. What happens is that uh, people give collections to the SPR. I then go through them and catalogue them. I then take, take them to Cambridge University Library or I incorporate them into the audiovisual if they're audiovisual. Um, and then they're catalogued at Cambridge, um, or or they are catalogued by me directly here. So I shall be continuing uh, to do that at the moment. Where you can find out about it is, are on my web pages. Um, and that's Melvin M E L V Y for Yankee N, and then Willin, my surname W I W L I N dot co dot uk. So Melvin Willin dot co dot uk. And there you'll get some pictures of things and the books and what I'm doing and what I have been doing, et cetera. Okay, very cool. Uh, and I guess the last question, I, I apologize, last one I guess wasn't the last one. Uh, regarding the SPR itself, for our listeners at home who might be interested, how does one get involved? Okay, very, very easy via their website, um, which is spr.co.uk, um, or just put in Society for Psychical Research. Um, they have an online encyclopedia uh, which I, I write articles for, and and so do many many other people, um, which is open to the public. So you you can go and have a look at that easily enough, um, and and all the information there for joining, if you want to join or investigating things, is is there on their web page. And if you want to contact me directly, then using there's a, an information available on on the um, web pages that I just gave you, and then people can contact me directly if they want to. All right, very very awesome. cool. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for giving us your time today. This was a lot of fun for us. We hope you had a great time as well. Uh, very informative. And we hope you have a wonderful day. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for doing it. Yes, thank you.
Take a walk with us. <laughs>